With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Hello and welcome to Marching Orders. This is a new podcast series by This Week Community News, and it's all about Central Ohio's war veterans sharing their experiences. I'm Scott Hummel, Assistant Managing Editor at This Week. Let's get to it. Our very special guest today is a Korean War Army veteran who saw combat on Bloody Ridge and then on Heartbreak Ridge, where he was wounded in October 1951. He's earned the Combat Infantry Badge, Korean Service Medal, United Nations Medal, Good Conduct Ribbon, and the Purple Heart. From Delaware, Ohio, Robert Byrd, thank you for joining us. So first, uh, just to help listeners get to know you a little, tell us about your family. You're a married guy. I'm married. I was married 51 years with the first wife, and when she died, I married a, a much younger woman. Hope I get 51 out of her. There you go. And do you have, do you have kids or grandkids? I, I had uh, three children. Uh, two of them are already dead. Uh, one of them is a hemophiliac, and he died from the tainted blood supplies. And, uh, the daughter died with a heart attack, so I've got one living son. And what do you do for a living, or what did you do for a living, Robert? I worked at Timken Oil Bearing in Columbus as a maintenance dispatcher and worked a part-time job for 18 years as a driver for Pure Later Career. You've taken part in numerous organizations. What's some of them? Well, VFW, American Legion, AMVETS, uh, Delaware County Veterans Association, Disabled American Veterans, Military Order Purple Heart, Korean War Veterans. So I keep busy. And you were born in 1931 during the Great Depression, and you said you lived in Clinton Township until you were 14, and uh, then where did you go to high school? I went to high school at Pataskala, Ohio. I'd went to school at Lyndon McKinley, and uh, when we moved to Pataskala, they were so far ahead of us that uh, I opted to stay back a year so I could catch up. And then you went to college as well? I went to Bliss College, business college, took uh, shorthand and typing and business writing and all kinds of things. So let's get right into your story. So the war had been going on for a few months, having started in June 1950. So you were quarreling with a gal, and you didn't like your job. Take it from there. Okay, so I was on my way home from work on a Friday afternoon. I wasn't happy at my job. I was fighting with my girlfriend. I thought life sucks, and I drove right straight to Newark, Ohio, and walked in the recruiting office, and Sergeant Looker, I always remember his name, said, uh, we've met the quota for Air Force, but if you join the Army, you get anything you want. I said, I'd like to become a mechanic. And they said, okay, when you get to Fort Knox, tell me you want to be trained and be a mechanic, and they'll let you do that. And I said, okay. So I signed my name on the dotted line and uh, 14 weeks of infantry basic training right straight to Korea. I joined January 26, 1951. And then... uh so the Korean War, you were there from June 51 for about nine months. And so you were on the front lines, and you mentioned something about getting four points for every month. That's the way it worked, yeah. If you was further back, you got three points. If you was way back, you got two points a month. So you'd be in there 18 months instead of nine months like I was. And so what did those points earn you? 
Um, well, I got 36 points for the four points per month, and that let me get out of there. The second division, it had been involved with the May Massacre. It said the enemy was trying to eliminate that division, and when you arrived, you were a gunner on the 57 recoilless. Tell me a little bit about that. Okay. When I got there, um, after what had happened in Newark, Ohio, with Sergeant Looker, I wasn't about to volunteer for anything, so as they came as a replacement, they said, anyone here had training on machine guns? And somebody did stick his hand up, and he became a machine gunner. Anyone had mortar training? I stood there. I wasn't going to volunteer for anything at that point. So they said, you are a 57 recoilless rifleman. I'd never fired the weapon. I'd only seen the weapon. So when I got to the company... As a 57 recoilless rifleman, my squad leader had got there the day before me. Had I got there the day before, I would have been squad leader instead of him. But uh, that's the way it worked. So he's out for staff sergeant, and I was over for corporal the first day on the job. So the way you've described this recoilless, uh, it's heavy? It's, it's, a, it's a heavy. It's an all-steel weapon. It's got a rifled barrel. It's about five foot long. It weighs 45 pounds, and it's got a... Two half-moon-shaped holes in the breech block, and when you fire, some of the explosion goes out the back, the projectile goes out the front. That's got a range a little bit over a mile, so and telescopic sights, a wonderful weapon. And if you'd like to see what one looks like, you go down to Moss Military Museum at Groveport, and they've got one on display. And then, so you were, one of your first combats was actually on Bloody Ridge, and you've described that, uh, at least in from your perspective, as being more brutal than Heartbreak Ridge. So describe Bloody Ridge from your perspective. Okay, Bloody Ridge, um, we had been on the Kansas line, which also called the Peace Line. The peace talks had started, and I thought I was the luckiest person in the world would never see combat. But when the peace talks bogged down, um, Elements of our division took Hill 1179. Now, when they say Hill 1179, that's in meters. A meter is 39 inches, and that's about two-thirds of a mile high. So it's a pretty tall hill. So we started before daylight climbing that hill. It was after dark when we reached the top. Uh, we went out on one of the fingers of Hill 1179 and was to occupy an outpost, a uh, company-sized outpost. That would be like an early warning for the people on 1179 if they were about to be attacked. That was the main hill they wanted to defend. Um, when we was out there, the Chinese uh, weren't very hospitable. They didn't like us being there. So they brought up an artillery piece, and he was picking off the foxholes one by one. And uh, I was one of the lucky ones. They didn't get my foxhole for some reason. Like God put his hand up as a shield, and I was protected. Um, my squad leader got Hill hit um, in the shoulder. When he'd fired the 57 recoil, he had loaded it tapped me on my helmet to let me know it was ready to fire. He went over and laid behind a log off the skyline. I'm standing on the skyline, I'm a beautiful target, and when I fired it, machine gun opened up at me. He got hit. How in the world did he get hit? He wasn't even on the skyline, but he got hit somehow, and he got a million-dollar wound. He got to come home. So I became a squad leader that day. So. Well, and you explained, too, was uh, as you would fire one of these, you would better duck for cover immediately because instantly they knew your location. Oh, and they absolutely. Yeah, because the back blast alone would stir up a big cloud of dust behind you. So you had the muzzle uh, blast out the front. So you had a two-way warning there that uh, something was going on. So you better be ready to move with it. So after you fire one of these, can you hear anything? I mean, I got to think that there's there's 
rifle fire coming at you, but after the loud blast from one of these, can you actually hear the rifle fire coming at yeah, you? Yeah, you can, you can hear it. Yeah, yeah. So, so after you fire one, do you just try to you move, duck? You move, move. You move. You better be ready to move. Get off the skyline. That's the main thing. Get off the skyline on the reverse slope so that you're protected from the, the forward fire. How many people were in your unit? Well, there was a there was a five man squad. You had the the um, squad leader would tell you what you're supposed to fire at. The gunner and the assistant gunner was really supposed to load it, and uh, you'd take turns carrying it since it weighed 45 pounds. And you had two ammo bearers, which carried either four or six rounds, depending on how long you're supposed to be carrying this thing. Because you had a pack board with four rounds out that'd be 24 pounds plus he's carrying m1 all the ammo for the m1 you know so they had loaded down sometimes they'd carry six so that meant they was carrying 36 plus all these other uh, things and how did your equipment hold up then i mean I, we always hear about the the ak-47s that are so good at holding up to sand and dirt and all that how did the m1s hold up i loved the m1 rifle it was a very dependable um the m1 saved my life on heartbreak um i had taken a machine gun belt apart and had taken every fifth round out which is a tracer and made up a clip of nothing but tracers to point out a target if necessary well a sniper was picking away at us on this mission to take hill 905 on heartbreak ridge and he was picking all around us, and no one seen where he was. I seen where he was at. So I fired a clip of tracers at him and told my 57s to fire him before they could get around off while the tankers in the valley seen what I was firing at, and he took him out. So tanker saved my life. Speaking of Heartbreak Ridge, you, you managed to get out of Bloody Ridge alive, only to go into Heartbreak Ridge. What was Heartbreak Ridge like? Heartbreak Ridge was a meat grinder. We lost so many men on Heartbreak Mission, Take Hill 905. Um, on the way up, one of the men um, was wounded, and he hollered for the medic, and it was an open draw with one big rock in it, and this person managed to crawl behind the rock, and our platoon medic ran right to the machine gun fire and got to him and rendered aid. So it was like that all the way to the top of that hill. Of course, it's always easy to go on top and throwing something down. It is to be at the bottom throwing something up. So by the time we got to the top of that, there wasn't too many of us left. And then uh, a mortar shell landed behind me, and I was taken out of the, off the battlefield. He said you were showered with shrapnel. Could you hear that incoming? They say that the one that actually hits you, you don't hear. Um, I wasn't listening for that whirl of that whirly bird noise that they make when they're coming in. You're listening to marching orders. All you could hear then was the blast. What did you feel? What did you hear immediately after that blast? Were you aware of your surroundings, or were you sort of in a daze? Um, I knew I was wounded, and I knew I better get off the battlefield, so I started walking out. Um, there was only a handful of people left there, so they brought another unit up and replaced us right away to, you know, reinforce and hold the hill. And uh, so the day after that, they put them in reserve. I went back to the hospital at Tegu, Korea, and was there for a week, and then I came back to my unit, and uh, I was promoted to section sergeant, which meant I was in charge of all three of the 57 recall squads. I looked like a 16-year-old kid, so... 
I ended up leaving there a few months later as sergeant first class, which is a pretty good rank to uh, think I'd start out as private E2 nine months before. Where all did you have shrapnel wounds? Was it your arms or my, your back? My or? left arm, my back. There's a piece about the size of a 45 slug laying on one of my ribs. They don't take it out. They just leave it there. It never bothered me. And you still have it? Yes, I still have it. Part of me. So for a while there, was it a little difficult getting through airports? I've heard that the... <laughs> no, I've never had any trouble with that. <laughs> How did you manage to get out of there? You're injured. There were just a few of you left. and You did, you did say another company came. How did you manage to get out of Heartbreak Ridge? I walked out, and um, a jeep picked me up on the road and took me back to battalion aid. And then battalion aid, they didn't think I'd go back as far as I did because I didn't look that bad. But I think it was more shell shock than anything else. I guess they call it PTSD today, but then it was uh, shell shock. So after you got out of there, you returned to Fort Knox for the rest of your enlistment. So what all did you do there, and for how long did you do it? At Fort Knox, I was field first sergeant, which put me in charge of all the troops in the company um, under the junior officer. And I went through, might as well say, I went through basic training about four times. And... Uh, the company commander had gotten in trouble, and I was sent to leadership school because the company commander, um, they kind of broke the unit up a little bit. And they sent me to leadership school. I didn't want to go. I looked like a 16-year-old kid wearing sergeant first-class stripes, and I thought I'd be lucky to hold the rank. I didn't want to go to leadership school. As it was, I came out top in my class. So being top in my class, they sent me to um, division artillery and, and as a combat infantry and tactics instructor. I was only a non-commissioned officer teaching infantry tactics at Port Knox. When I got inspected several times, I always come out with superior rating. So I was doing a better job teaching the kids than the junior officers were because most of them had never been to Korea. only thing I'd seen was ROTC in college and maybe OCS at Fort Benning, Georgia. But other than that, they had never seen any real combat. So I'd seen the real thing, and I wanted to protect those kids because I knew where they was going. They was going to go where I just came back from. So I made a mission to try to teach them everything I could to save their lives. What kind of adjustment was that for you, having been in combat, and then now you're, you're actually at Fort Knox and training others? I mean, it, there has to be, I guess, at some point, you knowing you're looking at some of these kids and realizing we're not going to get through this. Well, you just hope for the best. It's in God's hand. You just do what you can do to help them. And, and if they're paying attention in the class, and some of them didn't for some reason, just like in high school, they don't pay attention because they don't get to where they need to be. So, When you left, when you retired from the Army, what was your rank? Master Sergeant. And then once you actually came home, so it was enough of an adjustment, I imagine, just going from the combat field, from the battlefield, to being at Fort Knox. But then you make it back home. What was it like adjusting to the civilian life at that point? I learned to keep my mouth shut because I was complaining one time, and one of my coworkers said, what did he complain about? They paid you, didn't they? The pay for getting shot at was very, very poor compared to some of those people who was getting overtime and got to go home to the wives every night after they got off work at 3 o'clock. So big difference there. And you did say you managed to go back to Korea. You visited there, but... It was a, a rather uh, unusual week for your visit. Why is that? That's the week that Twin Towers came down in New York. 
we were out visiting where I had been 50 years before. They had a big bus that we were on, come back to the hotel and turn on the TV, and, and there's one of the Twin Towers coming out. I thought, holy crap, what an accident. And then a little bit later, seeing that second tower come down, you knew it wasn't no accident. Our group that I was with was supposed to go on to China. To me, China was still our enemy. I didn't want to go to China. I was going to come back home from our trip in Korea. As it was, they wouldn't let us fly out of Korea. We was running out of money, and we would go down to the 7-Eleven and get a sandwich out of the dairy case, and it wasn't beef, it wasn't pork, and it wasn't chicken. I don't know what it was, but it was edible, and I survived. Monday, they let us fly out finally, and I was never so glad to see American soil again in my life. But you did have a pretty good reception in South Korea from the South Koreans. Oh, there. the people were wonderful. They would come up to me and see my second vision patch on my hat and say, 2ID, thank you. They know. As you look back on that, even through the combat days, what are, what are some of the things that you can remember, I guess, look upon fondly? I mean, I know the, the entire thing overall was bad. It was war. It was battles. But were there times that you look back on fondly, maybe some conversations you had with some of your, 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 your fellow troops, your brothers in arms? Oh, we had fun. Um, we had one guy that at Christmas time had gotten a harmonica from his folks, and he didn't know how to play it, and he went, wee, 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 wee. He's driving us crazy. And we're on the the um, the trucks loaded up, and they always move you after dark so that the enemy can't see what you're doing. So we're on the trucks heading north, and he starts crying. What's the matter, John? I left my harmonica back there. He was crying, and we was cheering. We were so happy that he'd lost his harmonica. <laughs> so he wasn't the best harmonica player, I think. <laughs> I don't think he ever made the Grand Ole Opry. <laughs> What advice would you give to a military veteran these days who might be adjusting to civilian life? I, I'm sure you've heard of some of the, the uh, statistics you hear of 22 uh, servicemen a day who are committing suicide. And so I know there are a lot of veterans who are struggling these days just coming back. What advice would you give to them? My advice for anyone is to go to the VA immediately and get enrolled. Go to your local veteran service office. Every county in Ohio has got one. Veteran Service Officer, let them know who you are. Get your uh, discharge recorded. And if you're getting a few thoughts about suicide, they've got a very good suicide prevention office at Chalmers Wiley VA. Be sure you're in there and uh, let them know who you are. And uh, for God's sake, ask for help. Mr. Robert Burr, I thank you, and I thank you for your service. Thank you, Scott. And I also want to acknowledge uh, Tom Cunningham of Alexandria. Tom is a senior vice commander for the Military Order of the Purple Heart, Department of Ohio. It would be an understatement to say that Tom has helped me find guests for this program, when in fact Tom has actually found the guests for this program. Mm -hmm. And I'm uh, deeply grateful uh, to him and look forward to actually having him in here at some point to tell his story as well. And we would like to hear from you, our listeners. Uh, get your thoughts on, on this marching orders program. It's new, and so we want to hear from you. You can uh, email us at online at thisweeknews.com. That's online at thisweeknews.com. The subject line is marching orders. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at This Week News. And you can, you'll can you be able to hear this podcast on actually on our website at thisweeknews.com, and it will be downloadable on Google Play, iTunes, and Stitcher. I'm Scott Hummel. God bless. 
Thank you.